you I feel know, like you need to do a big burp. I'm do really it. Go sorry. On. Just do it. <laughs> Don't do it near me. <laughs> I can't do it. I've got stage fright. Hi, my name's Emily Chadbourne. And I'm Rochelle Fisher. And we're a couple of Xennials turning 40. Xennials are an often forgotten generation sandwiched between the Gen X and the Millennials. Not quite one, but not quite the other either. We were brought up on Disney princesses, roller skates and Game Boys. Left to flounder through the grunge era of the 1990s and expected to catch up with tech life in the noughties, how prepared was the Xennial woman for the delights and disappointments of the current day? To celebrate our birthdays, Em and I decided to launch our own mini-series dedicated solely to issues that so many Xennial women face today. From egg freezing to ageing to being single, we have interviewed some amazing Xennials with stories to share. Enjoy this episode! How do you feel about turning 40 in six days' time? Yeah, I really want to be like, I am ready for the rest of my life. I'm excited by the next decade. And I really thought that I would have that really positive attitude about it. Yeah. If I hadn't thought I would have a positive attitude about it, I wouldn't have suggested doing a fucking podcast series about <laughs> it or throwing a virtual birthday party and making such a fuss about it. I really genuinely you, you've made a fuss about your birthday. <laughs> it's just a few things happening. Um, I really thought that I would, that I, like I'm in such a great place as an adult. Mm. I really felt like I was going to nail turning 40. I thought it would happen. I'd make a big celebration about it and then it would be over. Mm. And it has not been that at all. I've had... Have you had midlife crisis? I've had a midlife crisis. Yeah. Do you know what it is? It's not about the number. And, you know, whenever I've kind of spoken to anyone about it, they're like, it's just a number, you know, it doesn't mean anything. I'm like, it's, it's not. not. I know it's just a fucking number. It's not about that. It is about a natural reflection that you sit in. And in that reflection, it's like all of this stuff that I thought that I dealt with sort of came up. Loads of stuff about being single, which I'm not going to go into now because... We've got two amazing experts talking about being single later in the podcast. Very amazing experts. I mean, when we talk about experts, what we're saying is that they are like, you probably couldn't find anyone more expert in being single than these two particular guests. It's like the Dalai Lama speaking about spirituality. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Should we tell them who the guests are? Oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure they're ready for it. <laughs> they're us. Oh, I was going to say, let them guess. We should have done a poll. Well, it's pretty obvious that it's us, though, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Bridget Jones one, Bridget Jones yeah, two. It feels a bit like that, doesn't it? Loads of stuff came up around that, which, mm. like I said, we'll save for the single podcast. I feel like stuff that I needed to look at, resolve, experience, feel, before going into my 40th year all came up. And I didn't know it was there, so it was a real shock. So that's the first thing is I didn't expect to have a midlife crisis. I didn't expect to cry. I didn't expect to feel ungrounded mm. and kind of like weirdly nostalgic for the lives I didn't lead. Mm. You know, I kind of like went through this phase of being really aware that I'm never going to get an opportunity to travel through India in my 20s. Yes, I can travel through India in my 40s, my 50s, my 60s. Hell, I can do it in my 70s and 80s, God mm. willing but I'll never get to be able to do it in my 20s again. Yeah. And they're really pivotal years. And I think back to my 20s, I'm like, why didn't I go to India? Why didn't I fall in love with an Italian man? Why didn't I live in Spain? Why didn't I go fruit picking through France? Like, I, I'm asking myself these questions, and they're fruitless questions to ask. That's completely and totally and utterly useless question to ask yourself. Did you go on a gap year? <laughs> I did go on a gap year. Of course you did. You're from the south. I went on a gap year. We didn't in the north. We just had to clean the chimneys. <laughs> well, you were small enough to. <laughs> no, I did. I went on a gap year. I finished uni and I worked for a bit and I went yeah. did Thailand and I did 
Awesome. But I did the Asian trail and then... So you have done stuff, and amazing stuff in your 20s. Amazing stuff I did. I have a, had a, such a lovely life. And this is the weird thing. It's like, I've had a lovely life. I've had these really mm. beautiful experiences. But you know when life happens to you, it doesn't feel as interesting as it sounds when you read it in a book or you hear it from somebody else. Do you know what I mean? It's like... I feel like you've read Eat, Love, Pray or whatever it is. And I'm like, I want to go to India and I want to date an Italian man. You're Maybe. basically wanting to be Julia Roberts, but no, five foot I version. Do, I don't care about being Julia Roberts. I'd definitely be Elizabeth Gilbert. But And I can't really explain it because it's not how I live my life. It's not what my mindset is normally. Normally, mm. you know me, like my mindset is all about like living in the moment, being mm. where you're at, looking forward. Yeah, the past can teach you some stuff, but other than the lessons, there's nothing there for you. Like move on. Yeah. And I'm very grateful for the life that I've lived and the experiences that I've had and the places that I've been. And so then there's a, like an element of shame of like, oh, I shouldn't be feeling like this because I've done all these wonderful things and I was born into such privilege and I have had lovely experiences and I, I have led an interesting mm. life. So who am I to be feeling nostalgic for lives that I didn't lead mm. and comparing a life that I never led to a life I wish I'd led to the life I have led? like. I get that that's a fruitless endeavor, but it's almost like I had, I don't know, it felt like I had to grieve that in some really weird way. I guess it's like really coming to terms with, from here on in, everything is gonna be preferenced with in my 40s eye. Yes. But with that as well, do you think the whole India thing is, you've got to look at it that you are so spiritual now that that is part of a thing that you want to do is go to India. Would you have enjoyed India and soaked up the culture as much in your 20s, drunken Emily? No, I'd have just done ketamine. Exactly. So you're going to experience it in your 40s, mm. probably with me, doing your <laughs> Kundalini again. <laughs> um, I love that you think you're coming to India with me. That's excellent. <laughs> so I think you're whole Indian, Indian, India experience will be better because it's in your 40s. I absolutely agree with you. However, when you're in the feeling, I know it's so hard to rationalize it. And, and it's almost like the imaginative part of you that's like, mm. I'm mourning my non-existent traveling mm. around India in my 20s experience. It's like, that is like, like an expression of a feeling. And so it's irrelevant that it's India. It's irrelevant that it's an Italian man. It's irrelevant what it was that I was mourning. It was a feeling, I suppose, of I'm youth? never going to be able to, to do that in my youth now. And youth isn't something that worries me. I'm, I'm absolutely hold fast to the narrative that I'm better now than I've ever been. In terms of my spiritual health, my mental health, my physical health, my emotional health, I'm a better person, I'm a nicer person. Are you a better person? <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine who I used to be? Oh, I would um, have loved to have known old Emily. Yeah. I don't know if you would. Anyway, again, it's like I can rationally understand that I am a better version of me than I've ever been. Mm. But I'm also aware, I think I do feel like I'm entering the second half of my life. Yeah. Which demands or allows for a kind of grief for the last four decades. Mm. So although I'm not like, oh, I don't want to get older, I'm definitely aware that I suppose I just, I, I think I've, I had to mourn my youth. Yeah. So I spoke with my godmother just before I turned 40. We always have a big birthday a few days apart. So when I was 30, she was 60. So when I was 40, hey, do the maths. I asked her about turning 70 and how she felt. And she said she realises that she's a lot closer to, to death. Mm. And that was her thing. She's like, you know, it is just a number, but I realise that my time here now is a lot shorter than than what it was. Yeah. And so she was mourning that. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I got, I don't, I, yeah. I mean, I've got no idea what it would feel like to turn mm. 70 and be like, well, we're on the countdown. Whereas we're on that scales, really, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, I, I, I we're feel like I'm halfway there. through, you know. I mean, I know life expectancy is getting higher and higher, especially for 
our demographic. We are, again, very privileged people who live mm. in a privileged country and we have the privilege of a healthcare system and we both earn good money and we have access to all of the things that will lead us into hopefully mm. a healthy later life. But, you know, I, mean, I don't also don't really want to live until I'm 102. Thank you very much. No. Like, I'm, I'm happy to... 85. 84, I reckon. Oh, well, I like been... the idea of going out on an even number. Hmm. I'd like to pirouette into my grave at 84. So you're going before me. Oh, yes, darling. I can't be bothered to deal with your funeral. <laughs> oh, well, you were going to get my pension. Mind you, there won't be much left of it, would there, by then? No, we'd have pissed up the wall in India. <laughs> <laughs> My, when I say pissed out the wall, I mean like drunk copious amounts of kombucha. <laughs> so I died. Kombucha I, drunk! Up <laughs> you're in my 40s! <laughs> oh Get my me my fishman pants and my tie dye top! God, please let it happen. So <laughs> I. What are we going to do with Theodora when we go to India? Um, oh, you can go and see the dog healer. You can stay at the dog healer's house. Yeah, he came to India with us. No. Anyway, back to stop digressing. Stop pretending that 40 isn't happening. It's happening mm. in six days. Yeah. I feel better now that it's imminent. Yeah. At the beginning of April, it felt horrible. Mm. So I'm, my birthday is the 23rd of April, and probably over the last couple of days, I've definitely felt better. Yeah. Um, and it feels so cliche, it feels like I shouldn't have felt like that, all of that kind of came up as well. But I think ultimately, like, it sits you in this place of deep, deep reflection, where you suddenly realise that your youth is behind you. And while I'm glad for my youth to be behind me, and I'm, you know, I don't necessarily have any regrets, I, yeah, I suppose you just realise that I don't know, it definitely feels like a different phase of my life. The 30s felt like it was an extension of my adulthood. And it, with my 40s, it feels like I'm going into a different phase of my life. And I think also over the last couple of years, I've done so much changing. Yeah. I've <clears throat> completely shifted my perception in so many different ways. And I've really found my faith. And I'm not talking about religious faith. I'm talking about spiritual faith. And I have really learned how to connect with myself and be in a more symbiotic relationship with the world around me my views my values what I believe to be true like the way I judge the world around me like everything has shifted and so I feel probably like there was also a little echo of mourning who I yeah. have been and who I used to be which is why I have this I suppose weird fantasy of just being like Mm. that party girl who could travel freely through India and fall in love on a whim and like I'm not the sort of person to fall to in love that. on a whim anymore because yeah. you know I'm, I'm tired of the whims and so I suppose there is a sort of grieving for who you mm. used to be. I loved my 30s. I really found myself in my 30s. Yeah, you see, I had a fucking horrendous first half to my 30s. Oh, I mean, I've had some shitty things happen to me in my 30s. Um, yeah, no, I don't mean that. I mean, like, I've never felt more connected to myself than I did in the first year of my 30s. The okay. second half, different yeah. story. But that first half, I just, yeah. I feel like those were my wasted years. Mm. They, they're the years I probably regret. But I also understand that they were necessary for me to come to where I am now. Yeah. Yeah, mm. definitely. And I I felt exactly how you did before I turned 40. If can you remember I called you in there and I was just like, I'm having a breakdown. My life is over. Yeah. I'm single. I mean, you two were beautiful and held a really good space for me. And I got over that. And I was very different to you. I didn't want to celebrate my birthday. I just wanted it over and done with and no fuss. Now I kind of regret it, but, you know, I'm going to have a big party for my 41st. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll plan it. Great. Let's go to Tasmania. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Do you remember? Do you remember? <laughs> Do you remember? <laughs> Do you remember the news report saying lockdown? 
for five random days in February as we're about to board to it Tasmania. It was all your fault. Why was it my fault? Because I didn't bloody you... break out of hotel quarantine and infect <laughs> half the fucking you like, country again. You got to do something for your birthday. Oh, yeah, You've was, got to. You I, were projecting that, that on me and I was like, I don't want to do anything for my birthday, Emily. I really don't want to do And then I backed off and then you were like, fuck it, let's go to Tasmania. That definitely did feel like God parted the clouds, looked directly (laughs) down, saw the top of your head and went, fuck her up. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going to put you at ease because our next guest, Jackie, her life began at 40. So there is hope for you yet. So today I have the great pleasure of talking to Jackie. Now, Jackie emailed me when I put a post out on Facebook about this particular project and immediately her story caught my attention and I'll let her explain why and and that will become evident for you guys as you listen. But um, Jackie is a Xenial and she is over in America and she and I resonate on so many levels about so many things. So I'm not going to waffle on too much. I'm just going to let Jackie speak her story because it's one that I think so many people out there are going to be able to relate with. So Jackie, welcome to the Unashamedly 40 podcast. And thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> You're so well. Well, thank you. Um, we'll let them into our little secret, shall we, Jackie? This is actually the second no. time that we've done this interview. <laughs> because someone I don't know who someone forgot to save the file and then cleared her laptop so yeah I mean this is uh this is you and I getting to know each other on an even deeper level exactly it's all good it's all good (laughs) thank you for your patience (laughs) tell me a little bit about what happened to you as you were turning 40 Okay, yeah. So I'm at the old end of Zenio, I guess. I'm 1977. When I was getting ready to turn 40, which would have been September of 2017, a month before that, my husband of 15 years told me he no longer wanted to be married. Now, our marriage was not perfect before then, but I never expected, (laughs) you know, my whole life to just all of a sudden just come crashing down. And He told me, I think a day after I had gotten back from visiting um, a friend in Scotland with my two kids. So it was like, I get back from this trip from Scotland and it was like, boom, I don't want to be married to you. Did you have any warning? I, I mean, I knew he had been unhappy for a while, but I didn't think that that was the direction he was going to take it, you know? And you and I know that as People get older and stuff. If they don't kind of do the healing work, it's always like the grass is always greener. They're always looking for something. Well, this didn't make me happy. This is going to make me. And they keep going after that thing. And at that time, I didn't understand any of that. But I really never, I never would have thought that he would have left our marriage, especially because his parents have been um, married, I'm going to say seven times between them. And he hated growing up that way. He hated it. So that was another reason I thought he would never do that, you know, to his family. So, Mm. yeah, there was a couple of things that it just was like, whoa, this is happening. Yeah. I think you touched on a really great point there, which is that, like, you get to an age where if you are not willing to go inside to work Mm -hmm. out your own happiness mechanisms then Mm -hmm. you will constantly be craving for something outside so whether that's the promotion a bigger house Mm -hmm. a better car a different wife Mm -hmm. a new relationship another child you know there's Mm -hmm. always that that sort of sense of longing and looking for something but of course when we're in that and we haven't done the work we don't identify that that's what's going on And I did that too, you know, looking back, it wasn't just him. It was me too. Like through, I would say, especially the last five years of our marriage, you know, he, he wanted to build a bigger house. We built a huge, you know, 6,000 square foot house because that was going to make him happy. Well, which of course it didn't, but I was always, I was more of like, well, you know, I'm kind of bored with life. I'm like, "Eh, let's just plan a trip. That was more my go-to. So we both did it, but you just check boxes for a while. You're like, okay, I'm married. I have kids. And you check those boxes and you never really stop to think if, if you're happy, I guess. Yeah. You kind of end up on the conveyor belt. That's what I call it. Mm -hmm. The conveyor belt of life. It's like you're in a factory and then you 
you keep getting things added to your life in the expectation that they're going to make you mm-hmm. whole and complete by the end of it. But then you mm-hmm. realize that you're just not that that's not what's going right. on. Right. Yeah. So it was a, obviously a massive shock. And mm-hmm. then what happened? Like in the midst of all that shock, as you were turning 40, what kind of narratives were going on for you inside your mind? I had a huge amount of self worthlessness, confidence issues, just I was just so sad. I was very codependent. I didn't realize it at the time, but I was, I left that marriage kicking and screaming. It was like a toddler being dragged out of the grocery store (laughs) throwing a tantrum. (laughs) I mean, it was awful. I looked back and I was like, oh, why was I clinging to this so badly? But I just didn't know any different. And, you know, my ego was like, no, this is your safe space. Like, it's not great, but you know what to expect. So I really, that first you know, several months to a year, I, it was like, yeah, I was like leaving kicking and screaming. Like I just didn't want my life to change, even though I wasn't happy. I knew what to expect. So it's amazing how hard we will fight for our unhappiness. Mm -hmm. Oh yes. Yes, absolutely. I I know you look back at it, like hindsight's everything, but you look back at it and you're like, what the heck was I thinking? At the time you were a mother of two children, but you also mm-hmm. had your own photography business. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Yes, correct. So yeah. Tell me a little bit, because you've got actually, when you <laughs> sort of first casually sort of flippantly said to me that you have this photography business, I was like, oh, that's nice. And then I looked, but you haven't just got a photography business. So you've got a really thriving, <laughs> successful, <laughs> very <Yeah>. awesome <laughs> photography business. So you you definitely underplayed your uh, your <laughs> success in that field. That must be an industry that has changed dramatically over the last few years. It has. It has changed a lot. And it's funny because that that's kind of a mindset thing when you think about it. Because I got so used to really not telling people I'm a photographer because as the years have gone on, you say I'm a photographer to a person when they ask what you do. And they're like, oh, yeah, my aunt's cousin's brother's sister, whoever, everybody's a photographer. But then if they go to social media, they're like, oh, you're a real photographer. (laughs) You're not using your iPhone. (laughs) (laughs) Or you just like you've been doing it a while, you know what you're doing. Like, yeah, it's it's past that because so many, you know, so many people have gotten into it. So it wasn't necessarily something I was proud of for a while. Um, And I'm still like. I think that it definitely is a mindset thing. I'm still like learning to be proud of that aspect of my life. But um, yeah, it's changed tremendously in, in 10 years. Um, right now, I mean, I've achieved the six-figure mark probably a good five years ago with my photography business. When Well, there's a couple of things. So when my ex-husband decided to leave, there was that initial like, oh my God, I'm going to be a single parent mm. and have a business. And that's that's kind of a scary place to be Mm. until you're, you're ready for it. Like, I just was like, when you're self-employed and you haven't done the work to learn how to trust yourself, it's pretty scary. Absolutely. Um, I should not have said that better myself. (laughs) It's so true. Yeah. If you are in business for yourself, you've got to do the internal work to learn how to trust yourself. Mm-hmm. Otherwise it's the most Otherwise you're riding experience. the roller coaster. Yeah. It's like yeah. feast and famine. You're all over the place. Cause you, I mean, you don't trust that things are going to keep coming in. You're just constantly like, um, you know, your relationship with money is like, you're like the needy girlfriend where you're like, oh, you're here, but don't leave me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Please come back. Please come back. Please come back. I know. Yeah. Exactly. You know, my photography business has never given me any reason to believe that it wasn't going to be successful. It was truly in my head. It mm. really was. You managed to survive the advent of the smartphone and the yeah. everyone's a photographer, hashtag no filter. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> of being a real photographer, <laughs> being a real photographer. Um, you know, I'm old enough that when I took photography in college, I don't have a photography degree, but I have an art degree, but I did, did take photography in college and I'm old enough that we shot film and we developed it in a dark room. So I didn't even start digital when I started photography. And then when, after we adopted my daughter, that was the first time I got like a good digital camera. And that's kind of where it started. It was like, I had a friend that was taking pictures outside 
and it was just so cool. At that time, it was all JC Penney's and, you know, those, those standalone studios. And you, I really hadn't ever seen somebody photograph families outside. Mm. And I was like, that's really cool. I'd really like to do that. So after that's my daughter's crazy adoption, to think now, isn't it? I know, right? Everyone so stood in front place. of one of those like marble <laughs> kind of um, fabriced backdrops and like just <laughs> smile directly at the camera I we had those photo shoots when I was a kid uh-huh. me and my sisters and my parents god they were awful absolutely and you put your hand on the little furry carpety thing the yeah. <laughs> little block that you were like <laughs> oh we all have those photos oh god thank god for the 80s but yeah I just hadn't seen anything that looked that natural and I was so drawn to it and I just started doing it. I never intended to start a business, which is sometimes how the best things start is just by following your intuition and love for something. But, you know, it turned into a business and, but yeah, the, the amount of change just in 10 years, not only with equipment or 12 years now, not only with equipment, but just with people's expectations, the styles, just everything. And yes, cell phones getting better and better and better. Yeah, there's been so many things. It's definitely been a ride. (laughs) Yeah, wow. Well, congratulations for evolving and and going with all of those changes because it's it's that level of flexibility isn't it that allows that business to thrive paying attention to what's going around us so that we can continue to evolve with our industry seeing what people are responding to is so huge that's a great business tip for anybody listening Mm -hmm. um the next thing i'd love to talk to you about is your network marketing because I remember when network marketing first came on the scene and actually it's been around forever right because ding dong Mm -hmm. Avon calling exactly but we're in sort of modern day if you like network marketing first came on the scene and it was so dismissed by so many people lots of people myself included I think probably thought it was a bit of a flash in the pan and it was all going to collapse and it would be exposed for being a pyramid scheme which it totally isn't and it's really Mm -hmm. stood the test of time and I know some very successful women who've made a lot of money through network marketing and I know some people who are just happily and casually making a bit of extra money on the side through network Mm -hmm. marketing and I know some people who have created some really strong bonds and a sisterhood and and made some phenomenal friends and connections through the network marketing industry how did you end up in network marketing Oh gosh. Well, first of all, my mom was an Avon lady. (laughs) Yeah. So I had that past connection, but I I didn't really understand it growing up other than we had 8,000 catalogs sitting around. (laughs) But so that same time when my ex-husband left, I was sitting in a hotel room in downtown Chicago. I was there to do some photo shoots. I had seen a lady posting and she was somebody that I had been friends with. She was actually the mother of a another photographer who we had gotten stuck at an airport together. And we talked for many hours and just always liked her, became Facebook friends with her. And I had seen her posting things about this product. I had told myself, you know, after all this stuff came down with my ex-husband, I was like, I'm getting ready to turn 40. During the month of September, I'm going to do one thing that I wouldn't normally do. One thing. I don't care what it is. It can be a small thing. It doesn't have to be a huge thing, but I'm just going to do one thing out of my comfort zone. I don't even know why that popped into my head, but I just felt this push to just do one thing outside of my comfort zone. And so I'm sitting in the hotel room in downtown Chicago and I message her and I'm like, is this something you actually make money at or is this just stupid? You know, and she was very, you know, she was super honest and gave me all the information. And I was like, okay, so you're telling me I spent 300 bucks on a kit and you know, worst case scenarios, I, I have $300 worth of products, right? No obligations or anything. And she said, yeah. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. You know, what the heck? Because I wouldn't normally, as, as you were, I saw network marketing as kind of icky, not in a great light. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, I got the pack and it kind of sat there for a couple of weeks because it, I'm still processing all the divorce stuff and trying to figure out lawyers and things like that. And so I finally did a live on it and people were like interested. I was like, okay. Um, and now I've been doing it three and a half years. I've been with them and I've never been super pushy. I've always just, you know, shared if it feels right. Um, I try to share results of people that I actually know. 
<laughs> Sorry, my dog's just gone off on No, one. I love it. I, was, I just loved your face. You're like, don't even. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, silence the dog with a look. Oh, love it. I, I've never been pushy with it or anything, but I, um, I would say in three and a half years, I've made around $200,000. Yeah, it's amazing. So, I mean, enough that I've been able to pay off my mortgage in two years. So, phenomenal, which is an incredible gift. I have lots of clients who are MLM or, or network marketing, um, certainly not exclusively, but you know, it, mm-hmm. it, it's a mindset game and it is it's yeah. about what you believe that you are allowed to receive. And it's going forth with that sense of trust. Like you said, mm-hmm. I think it comes back to that sense of trust. If you are in a scarcity mindset, you are going to start going out there and trying to grab custom and that energy is gross if you know that you are always looked after by the universe whatever that translate that in whatever way god source angels whatever Mm -hmm. but if you have got that sort of solid sense of um faith and trust in yourself then your energy around marketing and selling whether it be your photography business your coaching business your network marketing business completely shifts because you're like I'm just going to talk my truth. I'm going to, I'm just going mm-hmm. to speak about the things that I love. And that's going to come from this really calm, centered and certain place of knowing. And that is what sells. I mean, that's sales 101, isn't it? It's exactly. Just like, you know, if you are certain people will buy, people will never buy in the vibrational frequency of uncertainty. Yeah. yeah. yeah and I've always seen like personal development work and building a business is so much the same in that you just have to keep showing up, even if it, you're not seeing the results right off the bat. It's that, you know, that compound consistency that is really what's going to yield the long-term results. And I think that's one thing that sometimes is hard for people in network marketing is because, you know, some companies will promise you, you know, the world at your feet in a month. And it's like, yeah, that's yeah. not all, you know, sometimes it works out that way. Yeah, but, but they'll, they'll pedal out that one case study of that one person exactly. that, that happened to in the hundreds exactly. of thousands of people that it didn't happen mm-hmm. to. But yeah, I think if anybody has the right mindset, they can totally be successful at it, you know, like it really is. It's about shifting. So yeah. yeah. I also think the thing that I love is that it was the one thing that you were going to do in the wake of your divorce (laughs) that pushed you outside of your comfort zone. And I really love that. It's like, well, I'm uncomfortable anyway, so I may as well really embrace money and be uncomfortable yeah yeah, absolutely (laughs) it's a bit like you know walking in the rain and then and then you're like well I'm wet now so there's no point holding an umbrella over my head like I may as well just continue to be wet yeah you know I can't get any wetter Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah and it really was you know once I talked to her and got like a clear picture of the particular company I'm with then I was like, okay, so this is the worst case scenario. I'm like, I can live with that. Okay. You know? Yeah. And, and that was it. And don't you also think that that is one of the things that suffering gives you it, like it changes mm-hmm. the outer perimeter of what you think you can tolerate. And so mm-hmm. all of a sudden the things that once upon a time would have scared the shit out of you because life <laughs> was so certain and it was so, mm-hmm. you know, monotone and it was so safe. So that means that like even the smallest things are like, oh my God, but actually once Uh you've kind of like been pushed into that space of really uncomfortable suffering and you have survived it, you begin to have this sort of other reference point where you're like, well, if I could survive my husband of 15 years walking out with absolutely no notice, then I can probably survive either the success or the failure that might come from this project. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and as uncomfortable and horrible as it is going through those things, it, whether it's losing somebody due to death or losing somebody just due to the relationship ending, if you do the work and the healing through it, you do end up seeing it was like such a time for personal growth. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. And I'd love to just change gears a little bit now, if that's okay with you, because I'd love to talk to you about the adoption of your daughter. So you have two children, that's right, yeah? Correct, yes. And so your son, your first child was born as a biological child? Correct, yes. And you had no problems conceiving, everything was fine? Nope. Second month we tried, I was pregnant and, you know, I had him the month before I turned um, 27 and, you know, it was like, 
I assumed everything was hunky-dory with all that. How was your experience of becoming a mother? Because 27, <laughs> I mean, these days, 27 oh, is quite young. Oh, it wasn't it back in the 80s, but these right. days it's quite a young age. Oh, my gosh. Becoming a mom, I was not prepared. I was not mentally prepared. So I did not realize the loss of independence that would come from having a newborn. Like you can't just get up and go somewhere. Like it's a whole plan, a whole thing to walk outside. You know, your, your whole life is basically running around this tiny football. And (laughs) (laughs) I just, I wasn't prepared and people can all day tell you like, okay, sleep now, da, da, da. And you're like, I can handle it. And then it happens. You're like, oh my God. Like I, I just, you didn't, you don't know until you know. Um, so it took me a good three years to even consider having another child because, um, and I had some complications after the birth. I had an allergic reaction to the epidural. I just had some weird stuff. So we had a rough first couple of months. Like I always joke that like, I loved my son right off the bat, but I don't think I really liked him until he was like six months old. That is such a fair, fair thing <laughs> Then say. we became friends. Yeah. Like yeah. I loved him from the beginning, but we had a bit of a rough go, but, but, you know, he's absolutely wonderful. Wouldn't change him for the world now, especially now that he's, you know, getting ready to get his driver's license. I'm like, oh, <laughs> now he's leaving the house. I love him. Exactly. <laughs> He's been such a good kid. He was, he was a rough baby, but man, he's like, he's made up for it. And, you know, as, as he's gotten older, he's wonderful. So I wasn't really ready until he was like a little over three before I was like, yes, I definitely want another child. And it was like, once I decided, I decided it was like, let's do it right this second. So I went in, I was trying to get pregnant and I pretty much, the only way I know to explain it is intuitively knew right off the bat that something was not right. And so I took an ovulation test and lo and behold, I wasn't ovulating. So I'm like, well, that's clearly a problem. So so I went to the OBGYN and they gave a medication that's commonly used called Clomid to force you to ovulate. And they'll put you on that for at least here in the States. It's very common. They'll put you on that for about three months to see if you get pregnant. And then after that, many of them will say, you need to see a specialist, a fertility specialist. And so we did the three months, nothing happened. I went and saw a specialist. The first specialist was like, yeah, let's start doing these expensive treatments right away. And again, intuitively, I was like, I need to know what's happening first. Like, I just felt like there was something off. And I was like, I'm not going to throw a bunch of money. Just, you know, like I, I need to know more first. So I went to a different specialist and even he was a little skeptical. He was very nice and understanding, but I think even he was a bit skeptical. Like you, you're young, you got pregnant once. Like, I don't really see an issue. It's probably all in your head. Oh, <laughs> that was. one. <laughs> Why don't you go on holiday and relax? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but I was annoying enough, I guess, that I convinced him to go ahead and do a laparoscopic surgery, which is like a, just a small incision where they investigate all your, your lady bits in, internally. And, um, I woke up, that was September 9th of 2008. And I woke up from the anesthesia and my husband at the time, I looked at him and I was like, oh God, what? You know, I just saw it on his face and, you know, talked to the doctor and he's like, I have done two of these surgeries a week for the last 20 years, you know, a lot basically. And I have never went in and found somebody who on one side just has a tube that ends. So I was born without an ovary on one side, never knew it. So I only was born with one ovary, which that's not so much an issue, but that one ovary was, had endometriosis on it. It wasn't functioning the best. And at that point, I feel so blessed that it was such an easy decision to switch to wanting to do adoption because I'm like, I'm not going to pour a bunch of money into my one crappy ovary. (laughs) I've had the chance to be pregnant. You know, I've I've had that experience. My kid looks just like me. Um, You know, I've, I've had that. So it was such an easy decision just to be like, okay, good. I'm, we're going to do adoption. Yeah. And so I did some research, found an agency that I like, liked, and we signed with them October 5th of 2008. So about a month later. And the whole time, once you get signed up with an agency, they require you to do a lot of, you know, background checks. And there's a social worker that comes in and makes sure that you're not crazy and that, you know, you're a good fit and all that stuff that you're, 
an appropriate family to adopt a child. And the whole time I was very motivated, like I have to get this done. I have to get this done. No reason, like no evidence to show that. I just felt very motivated. And even my ex-husband was like, you know, we have time to do this. And I'm like, no, we need to get this done. So anyway, we got it done pretty quickly. It took about six weeks, which is very quick, quick for that type of thing. Um, and finished it right after the state's Thanksgiving, which is at the end of November. And our agency in um, Ohio said, well, we work with an agency in Florida and they get a lot of last minute cases. I'm going to send them all your packet, you know, physical stuff. But I feel like I need to email them your stuff, you know, just to get it in their hands. And so the next day we got a call from the agency in Florida that says, or that said, we have a mom that came in. She's giving birth today. It's an African-American baby boy. Are you interested? And of course I was like, yes, I am interested. My ex-husband at the time was a little like, oh my God, it's happening too fast. And, you know, we went back and forth. And at the end I was like, listen, if it's meant to be, it'll happen. If it's not, it won't. And so he said, okay. I called them back and said, yes, we would love to be considered for this, this child. And I don't know, several hours later, it was in the evening. That was a Friday. They called me back and said, oh, the baby's been born. It's a girl. Now this is interesting because during the adoption process, I really had a little girl on my heart, but I had decided in the end that this was all happening for a reason so that I was just going to be open to race and gender and the universe is going to send me whatever child is supposed to be, you know, our child. And so in adoption, very rarely do they tell you the sex of a kid unless they are absolutely positively sure that that's the case. So it still boggles my mind that I said yes to a boy and ended up with a girl. <laughs> <laughs> like the universe was testing yes, you. Yes. Yeah. 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 And so the, they said, well, we're going to allow the birth mother to choose tomorrow because, you know, she's still in recovery from the C-section. And in the States with domestic adoption, oftentimes the birth mother wants to choose the family and you put together these books. It doesn't have anything like identifying information, but it's more like we like to go camping. We have three dogs, whatever, just things about your family. So that was Saturday. They showed her the books. And then the day, like the day just dragged on. We heard nothing. Our agency in Ohio kept checking in with us. Like, I haven't heard anything yet. And by dinner time, you're like, this is never going to happen. You know, like you're just, mm. you're just doubting everything at that point. But around six or seven, we got a call from Jacksonville, Florida that said, come get your daughter. Wow. And so we had to pile in the car with our four-year-old <laughs> and we drove through the night and we got her the next day. So our adoption took about two months and two days from start to finish. That's phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's funny as well, what you say there about like, you've got to about tea time and you're like, oh, this isn't, it's not going to happen. The doubt begins yeah. to really creep in. Yeah. And I've been thinking a lot about that recently. I've come to the conclusion that faith only comes on the end of doubt. Like, mm -hmm. otherwise there's no need for faith, is there? And so Absolutely. it's like the weird cycle, the life cycle of faith and the sort of last phase of it is that extreme acute doubt where you think like, oh, okay, I'm going to have to surrender this. It's not, yeah. it's not happening. Yeah. And then, you know, faith kicks back in and you're like, ta-da, the thing that you've been <laughs> wanting and manifesting and desiring and working towards and hoping yeah. for is, is here. Like it's, again, it's like universal test. It's like, well done, you passed the test. You doubted. <laughs> it's your child. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's kind of how I felt too with the boy girl thing. It was like the universe is like, are you really going to take whatever I give you? And I'm like, yes, I will. And then they're like, oh, here's a girl. Yeah. Which is funny now because she's a total tomboy, but you know, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. The irony. <laughs> How have you found bringing up a black girl in your community? And have you found any, mm -hmm. have you come up against any racism? Have there been like inappropriate questions? Like, cause it's, it's a whole mm -hmm. extra level of parenting, I would imagine. Absolutely. It's for the most part, I feel really good. Like we live in an area that's pretty diverse racially. So that's been good. So I always like to think back. So my son was a little over four when we adopted her. And it was like three weeks after we had had her and he was like laying on the bed next to her and just playing with her hands and stuff like that. And he looks up at me and he's like, mama, 
Nora's skin is darker than mine. Like it was just, it's like after three weeks, he just figured it out. And I was like, God bless you. Like he just had no idea. And from that point on, he was just so proud that she was like his sister. Like they were different, but they were the same. I don't know. That's the only way I can explain it. And he would love to just, you know, tell people all about her. And so in that sense, it's been good for our family, but you will get people that are kind of, um, ignorant from here to there, but I've seen, it, it. it's interesting. I've seen so many different behaviors on both sides. So at the time when we adopted her, I was working at a long-term healthcare facility. And most of the women that did the day-to-day patient care that did the bathing of the patients and feeding and things like that were African-American women. And many of them had high school degrees, no college degrees, some not even high school degrees and essentially had grown up in poverty. And I was in the marketing team. So they're always, even though we were always nice and polite to each other, there felt like there was just this, this invisible divided line between me and them, I guess, beforehand. I never thought about it, but it was definitely there. And, mm. and the reason I say that is now in retrospect, I can see it, even though I didn't think about it at the time. But once those girls found out that I had adopted a black baby, it was like, it, it <laughs> on it was it was gone they were just like oh my god you know it's interesting like how things shifted you know people are like oh you're not you know this person that I thought you were you're Mm. you know you're different and and I think that goes on both sides of the fence you know regardless of of what race that you know you've grown up in and honestly you know I grew up as a white female I can only be a white female I can learn Mm. as much as I can and I do so often every single day, constantly, you know, trying to learn more to make my daughter's life better. So she understands who she is. But, you know, at the end of the day, I can't know what it's like to be a black person. You know, it's been really important to have other black people in our lives. And um, my sister's partner is black and her children are biracial. But just having friends and lots of connections there has been really important. But it's been interesting. Black Lives Matter was a very interesting thing to go through, especially as an adoptive parent, because the narrative that most adoptive parents give their adopted children is that we're all we're all unique and beautiful, but we're all equal. So it's kind of this all lives matter narrative, for lack of a better word. And then Black Lives Matter comes along and it's like explaining how that's different, you know? Mm. And, and so that was, that was, um, an interesting time to try to navigate and make sure they're understanding like what is relevant about the situation and what to take away from it. Yeah. Yeah, Huge. I would imagine. Mm -hmm. So tell me this, the last thing we're going to talk about, because I know your time is precious and, um, and I've taken up more, (laughs) but tell me a little bit about the green dress project. I'm so in love with this project. So how did this project come about? What does it mean? And where does the green dress come from? This is kind of basically my journey into mental health and finding yourself growing, healing, shifting your energy, all the things that you talk about and you've done. It's my journey from essentially when my ex-husband left to present day and, and it's still going on. That September, after he left for my 40th birthday, had planned a trip to New York City for the weekend with my daughter to meet with a friend. I didn't want to go, of course, because I felt like garbage and ended up going. And we were walking around Soho and I saw this store that I used to shop at at Paris when I did an internship in Paris when I was in college. I saw the store that I used to shop at there and I was like, ah, you know, I never, I, I hadn't seen that store in years. So I was like, we have to go in. And we went in and from across the room, I immediately saw this green dress. I just was drawn to it for no real reason other than I just, I don't know, I beelined for it. And it was one of those cuts that I was like, there's no way I'm going to look good in this right now. (laughs) But I bought it anyway, bought it in a size that I felt like I would look nice in it in and, you know, got home the trip, threw it in my closet, life proceeded. And, you know, I was going through the divorce and things. A year later, as I was getting ready to move to my new place, I found it again. And I was like, you know what? I was having my pretty woman moment, you know, where Julia Roberts goes in the store and she's like, big mistake. And she's like, look. (laughs) So I was like, I'm going to lose the weight. I'm going to fit into this dress and I'm going to look amazing. And he's going to be so sorry. Like I was having one of those moments. 
And so I started on the weight loss journey. And what I realized was that losing weight was wonderful and it was great, but I still was unhappy. And I was like, why am I not like, this is supposed to make me happy. Why am I not happy? So it became this whole journey of, I started working with various coaches, learning about different energy techniques, healing. I mean, I try, I feel like I've tried so many things. I've not tried Kundali yoga. So I think that I love hearing you talk about that, but I feel like I've tried like a lot of different methods and just seeing like learning about how to shift my energy and my mind and all that stuff. So it's really about that journey and that, you know, I'm starting to help other women with their journeys who've been through a lot. And I had actually planned to kind of launch it in basically March of 20 and then COVID hit. And like everybody else, it was like a deer in headlights, like what just happened? (laughs) (laughs) Careful. And so I just kind of sat, I didn't do anything for a while. And in retrospect, I know it wasn't the right time for me to start because my brother actually ended up taking his life this past September. And that was the moment that I was like, okay, enough is enough. We're not sitting on this anymore. It's time to do this because there are people out there that need this, you know, that need this work that are hurting. And it's so devastating. But I will say that the grief that I felt for my divorce and the process and working through that was so much different than when Nick took his life, not because it wasn't more devastating. It was more devastating, but I had done so much more work in between to be able to process my emotions and, and feel them in a healthy way. So I processed that experience and continue to process that experience in such a different way than I would have had I not done all the work death was a massive catalyst for me. It was that Mm -hmm. reminder that we are finite in our incarnation. And, you know, what are you going to do with this one precious life? And I think, you know, you have that added layer with your experience with your brother, which is that actually people really need this service. They need Mm -hmm. to have a safe space where they can come and understand themselves and understand their emotions. Because, you know, suicide here in Australia, I can't remember the exact age bracket, but it is the leading cause of male death in mm-hmm. young adult men. And yeah, you know, that my is my brother's was 39. He'll, his 40th birthday is next month. So yeah. And there is suffering and, and there mm. is needless suffering as well, because so much of it is, um, is fixable. Silent. And so yeah, it's, when it's so silent. People, yeah. They're like, I never would have expected that. You hear that from all people all the time about suicide. Like I didn't see it. I didn't see the signs. I never would have expected. And it was the same thing. You know, he was a high ranking military person, did not have PTSD or anything like that. It was never would have in a thousand years thought it. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm very excited about <laughs> the Green Dress Project. So it is officially launched in launch right now. It, we, right now we have a Facebook group and I'll give you that link to include with this. The website is paid it is being branded and I'm letting people that are talented in that area because I am not do that yes (laughs) just let you pay people like what they're worth to do their job yeah yeah business 101 don't get stuck doing the stuff that you're not very good at doing I'm not trying to build my own website that is not going to go well so yeah so the website will launch sometime in May just starting to put together program lots of free content and then for the people that wish to invest in in themselves because you and I know, you know, free content is great, but it's really when people put, you know, their money where their mouth is that the real transformations start to take place. Yeah. So yeah, it's a, it's in that. the tra- it's in the transaction that the transformation takes place. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, that's a much better way to put it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will be linking the Green Dress Project in the show notes. You can go ahead and join the Facebook group. We are all waiting in anticipation for the website to drop. And thank you for the work that you do. It is it's important work. He like holding a space for other people to come and heal is important work and it's in that individual work that global change takes place so thank you for your time today thank you for being so candid and open and honest about your story you've dropped some real gold in this interview and I know a lot of people will really really resonate with it and um, we're just going to close with three quick fire questions what is your favorite memory from the 1980s it was the charm necklaces, like the 
um, with the little charm that you used to trade with your friend that and the scratch and sniff stickers. Oh, you guys yes. have, I don't know if you have those. And the, they were weird. Yeah. yeah. They kind of smelled funky, but we used to trade the stickers and the charms, eventually garbage pail kids. I think those were still in the eighties. All those little, I don't know when I think of the eighties, I think of the toys for some reason, yeah. the cabbage patch kids and rainbow yes. bright and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The toys in the eighties were excellent. I'm sure every generation uh-huh. says that, but I, I really feel quite certain that uh-huh. those double A battery toys the 1980s anything with a battery and it was high tech wasn't it that's yes that's the wonderful thing um what has been the main difference for you between turning 30 and turning 40 oh gosh 30 I did not have a clue I mean I look back and I'm like you were still a baby at 30 I really was though mentally like I was still like you know I had a young child and I just I didn't, I hadn't lived enough life, you know, to really know what was happening. And my wisdom has expanded so much since then. So yeah. it's just about life in general and about understanding myself and where, what I want and where I'm going. It's like yeah. huge. Back yeah. then I was a box checker, you know, got married, had a job, had baby, you know, like I was just off checking the boxes and now it's so much different. The box checker. I love that. And finally, (laughs) what has been your greatest lesson to date? I didn't realize how not trusting myself was the root of so many of my emotional and manifesting issues and how important and integral that was just learning how to trust yourself and practice it on a daily basis. Yeah. Jackie, it has been an absolute honor and a real pleasure to get to know you. And I look forward to um, getting to know you even better and supporting the Green Dress Project. Thank you so much for interviewing with me today. I really appreciate it. How good is Jackie? Beautiful. What a beautiful story. I just, I just I really loved the like candidness that she talked about when she was like you know she was really holding on to that relationship and Mm. and how she once she let go again like a really deeply spiritual practice just to let go of something and be like okay I don't know what's next and I'm going to sit in the void and it's going to feel really uncomfortable but I'm going to trust that something else is coming and then to have that kind of like moment where she saw the green dress and she was like it's not about the dress but the dress is symbolic of me rebuilding my life and coming back better and stronger like that for me is something and it's having that constant reminder isn't it just as if you had a dream board or something to focus on Mm. I just love that she picked a green dress Mm. it's almost like it could be a movie the green dress project yeah it's definitely a book title yeah so girls go buy yourself a dress go buy yourself a dress Emily a 40 year old dress you know You know what I'm gonna buy? I'm gonna buy myself a fucking wedding dress. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna buy myself a massive 1980s style wedding dress. And I'm gonna look at it until I get a boyfriend. Which I'll never get. Why? Because I'm the sort of person that has a 1980s style wedding dress in their wardrobe. And I love her drive. And I love the fact that she's got a side gig. I also feel like she's one of those people that really didn't didn't set out to be successful. Do you know what I mean? Just I just happened. feel like she just was and she allowed it to happen and mm. and I really love that about her as well. And again, like the, the manifestation around adopting her daughter, like she yeah. just it really feels like she just let go and allowed the universe to work in her favour. And that is I don't think that's a non teachable skill. Yeah. Thank you to Jackie and thank you to everybody who is listening. We very much appreciate you. Don't dribble your drink, will you? Don't dribble my drink. No. Do you think I am in a nursing home? A little keeping up. <laughs> That'd be great. Oh, wouldn't I can't it? wait to be in a little nursing home with you. <laughs> How good would that be? When are we traveling India and then when are we going in the nursing I home? I reckon we should travel India in our 60s. Okay. Let's wait till after Theodore's died. I because I don't I, I genuinely can, can we go not talk about that. Well, fifteen. We've made okay. we've made a deal. Me and Theodore. He's going to be fifteen. So we're traveling to India when we're sixty yeah. or in our sixties, early sixties. Maybe that's what we'll do for our sixtieth mm. birthday. And then when are we going in the nursing home? Eighty five years in the. Oh, you there? Let's do eighty two in the nursing home, and then we'll be in there for two years. Well, that's, you'll be in there for two years. You'll be in there for three. Oh, well, I might actually leave once you're dead. 
I mean, what's the point? I mean, am I good? My heart will I can travel. <laughs> Come back. <laughs> Baby, come back with your color TV and just see the collection of our body. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Unashamedly 40, a special short series briefly interrupting my Unashamedly Human podcast. If you've loved this episode, please share it with your mates, rate and review, and head to the show notes to get in touch. Thanks for listening. <laughs>